Good morning, New Life. It's uh, so great to be with you. Uh, virtually is not as good as in person. We miss you. We really look forward to the day that we'll be able to sit with you in person and worship again. Uh, and we hope that day is really coming soon. The light is is there at the end of the tunnel. So that gives us hope. And uh, hope is one of the things that I'm going to touch in this message today. As you've heard the scripture read out from Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verses 15 to 23. Now, one of the reasons why so many Christians cherish the depth and the power of Ephesians is because Paul writes so full of the Holy Spirit that twice in the letter he can only express what he wants to say by bursting into prayer. And his first great prayer begins uh, at verse 15 uh, with the words, for this reason. For what reason does he pray? Well, the reason is recorded in the previous verses. He, it's there that he describes how God has chosen us. Uh, verse 4, he has predestined us. Verse 5, he has forgiven us. Verse 7, he sealed us with his spirit. And so for that reason, because of all the great things that God has done for you and I, he is going to pray. Now, those things, the fact that God has chosen us and forgiven us and given us his spirit, those are the foundations of all Christian faith. Um, and foundations are critical. There's a house being built. Uh, just uh, We can see it rising above our window, and they spend a lot of time dealing with the foundations. So foundations, we all know, are critical. But uh, the person that's bought the house is not going to be happy moving into a house that's only foundations. Foundations are meant to be built on. And uh, all some people see of the Christian life is the foundation, how their need for eternal salvation has been met. Well, if that's how we see it, then we really haven't understood salvation and uh, maybe people that that's all they see, maybe they're not actually saved at all. Why? Because their world is self-centered on themselves. It's all about how their need for salvation has been met. Well, the cross means that your life and my life isn't about you or me anymore. It's about the mission Jesus sends you on. It's about God and it's about other people. In other words, we're saved for a purpose. You can't expect to serve God in eternity if you haven't done so on earth. The fact that God saved us is incredible, but it's only the beginning. It's a foundation that's meant to be built on. And so in verse 15, Paul says, for this reason, I pray. Now, let me just stop to say the greatest ministry of any Christian is prayer. Far too often, Christian leaders are known for anything but their prayer life. And as a result, it's amazing, but sad, how many things leaders can do without ever consulting God. And then they wonder why they get into trouble. And the same has probably been true for you and me and our experience. Now, it's a mystery why a sovereign God calls us to pray when he has all power vested in himself anyway. But he has chosen to restrict himself to working in cooperation with us. 
And the place that that co-working with God starts is prayer. Prayer ensures that all we do for God is birthed from a living relationship, not a dead religion or human achievement. So if you haven't been in the prayer room, uh, how can you really expect to hear what God is calling you to do? And how can you receive the power to live the life that God wants you to live uh, today? Prayer moves the heart of God. Prayer releases the purposes of God. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is the place where you and I enter the throne room of God to receive the power to represent him on planet Earth. So then Paul prays that the Father of glory and the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the Spirit. So he prays first that God would give us the Spirit. Uh, or specifically, the Father of glory and the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give us the Spirit. So people ask, where in the Bible is the word Trinity? Well, if you can't see the Trinity in a statement like this, uh, with all due respect, you're blind. Paul speaks of all persons of the Trinity right here in one breath. Now, the Father is described as the Father of glory. Glory in the Bible refers to the essence of someone, who the person really is. That was the core meaning of it. But because the essence of God, who God is, is so much greater than the essence of anybody else, this word glory became came to be associated particularly with God. Uh, and the Bible goes on to say that the Father shared his glory with the Son. Jesus carried the glory of the only Son of the Father, John 1, verse 14. But here in this verse, um, we find something really astounding. The Bible also says that Jesus has shared that glory that the Father shared with him. Jesus has shared it with us. Um in the same way that Paul writes to the Corinthians, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And of course, Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, glorify me that my glory may be in them. So we are carriers of the glory of God when you get up in the morning. Remind yourself of that. And Paul prays that God would give them the spirit. Now you say, well, how can that be? They've already been sealed with the Spirit. That's what we read in verse 13, or that's what Paul wrote in verse 13, just before our passage this morning begins. Well, they've been sealed with the Spirit, yet Paul prays God would give them the Spirit. Well, the question here is that no matter what your past experiences or mine with the Holy Spirit, you and I need his presence and power today. You can't live off yesterday's anointing. You know, we so easily forget the Holy Spirit is God on earth. Uh, who would think that because they met Jesus as Savior years ago, they don't need to encounter Jesus again today? But that sometimes is the way we look at the Holy Spirit. Jesus though, only comes to us through the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. He is God on earth. And we need him every day. No matter what our experience has been in the past, we need him freshly to encounter us today. Every day is a new opportunity to welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives. 
And then Paul goes on to describe the spirit as the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, it's very significant that the work of the spirit here is described by these two words, wisdom and revelation. And often we think of the Holy Spirit as bringing peace or comfort, or sometimes we might think of him as bringing power. But Paul here sees the foundational work of the spirit a little differently. Wisdom and revelation. What's wisdom? Well, wisdom is the correct understanding of known facts. God is the creator of the world. He's Lord over the world. He's the one who saves us from sin. Um, Why, therefore, do we need the spirit to understand that? Well, ask an unsaved person to explain the basic truths of the Bible. They can because they don't have the spirit. What we know of God is known by the Holy Spirit. And we want to keep our knowledge of God sharp. So we need the continuous presence of the spirit in our lives. He is the spirit of wisdom. He leads us into truth. You can't really understand the Bible unless the Holy Spirit has given you a revelation of its truth. So he's the spirit of wisdom, but he's also the spirit of revelation. Now, revelation is the unveiling of facts hidden in God. So wisdom is the correct understanding of facts. Revelation is uh, speaks of an unveiling of facts that are hidden. So the fact that God desired to save the Gentiles, for instance, and incorporate them into his covenant people, that Paul describes in chapter 3 as a revelation to him. It's something that's normal for us today. We only need wisdom to understand it. We don't need revelation. Um, but for Paul, it was a revelation. It was a mystery. He describes uh, in chapter three that God had to reveal to him. Um, And as I say, that doctrinal truth is no longer mystery to us. But there are other things unknown in our lives that we need the spirit daily to reveal. That's why Paul talks about understanding mysteries and experiencing revelations in one Corinthians chapters 13 and 14. And so prophecy, the word of wisdom. And the word of knowledge in 1 Corinthians 12 are forms of revelation. And prayer, because he's talking within the context of prayer here, prayer is often the place where God kind of pulls the curtains back on things that he wants us to say or do. It's the place where we stop listening to the noise around us long enough that instead we can listen to God. That's just so important. We don't even go into the place of prayer necessarily to talk a lot, but just to be quiet and listen is valuable in itself. And by the way, a a minute in prayer is a good investment. I'll say something about that before I finish. So he prays that God would give us uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And the next phrase is in the knowledge of him. Now, this word knowledge in Greek is epignosis, and it means to know God intimately, to have intimate personal knowledge of God, relational knowledge. So any miraculous manifestation which is divorced from intimacy with God is a train wreck in the making. The miraculous, without the deep experiential knowledge of God grounded in the scriptures conveyed to us by the Spirit, 
the miraculous on its own will lead us either to fakery or even to demonic activity. The devil can produce miracles. But we need to walk in the experiential knowledge of God, which brings us into a deep humility in the way of the cross in order to be entrusted with the power of God and that it not go to our head. If the miraculous without that knowledge of God leads to disaster, the miraculous, which is rooted in the knowledge of God, will lead to revival. Daniel 11.32 says, Those that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So the goal of the work of the Holy Spirit within us ultimately is to bring us into a deeper experiential knowledge of God. The Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us. So Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would give us uh, wisdom and, and revelation and knowledge of him. And then the next phrase is having the eyes of your heart enlightened. It's because our hearts have been enlightened by the spirit that we're in a position to know God. The primary role of the spirit, according to these verses, is to lead us into wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of God and that deep experiential uh, relationship with him to, to be enlightened in that sense. And the next verses, verses 18, the second half of verse 18, down to verse 23, which is the end of our passage. The next verses tell us something about what that knowledge that Paul is praying we would receive. They tell us something about what that knowledge is. So if he's praying for us to be led directly into the heart of God here, how important it is that we grasp what he's about to say. The knowledge of God involves three different things. Number one, in verse 18, B, second half, verse 18, is the hope of his calling. Now, in the Greek culture, the pagan secular Greek culture, the word hope referred to a dream or a fantasy, which removes us momentarily from the reality of troubles that we're facing. Uh, So you can see that it's a completely different meaning from what we find in the Bible. Hope is a fantasy. It doesn't deliver us. It doesn't offer anything practical. It's an escape world. But in the Bible, hope is something completely different. Hope refers to an unshakable trust in an utterly reliable God that in time he will work out his plan and that we can hold on to him patiently while he does it, that's hope. We have the assurance, hope gives us the assurance that God is holding on to us and that he'll fulfill his plan for us, regardless of what's going on. The pagan word referred to being effectively removed from reality uh, temporarily going into a fantasy land, but then your reality is still sitting there. The biblical concept means you face reality head on. It's tough, but hope is like an anchor that comes into the midst of your situation that assures you that you have an utterly reliable God, and no matter what the circumstances, he'll bring you through. That hope is 
rooted for us as Christians in our salvation. Even when things are tough, Jesus never leaves us. And he has, as I'm sure you've experienced, an incredible ability to get, bring good out of even the worst things that we face. But the message of this particular statement is we need the Holy Spirit every day to make this hope alive for us. And we access him through that place of prayer and fellowship with him. So if the knowledge of God that he's praying for us to reach through the gift of the spirit refers, number one, to the hope of his calling. Number two, it refers in verse 18, part C of verse 18, it refers to the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So the knowledge of God refers to this wonderful hope. It also refers to the wealth of his inheritance in the saints. Now, notice that this text speaks of his inheritance. That's God's inheritance. That's an interesting thought. We often think of it, and sometimes the Bible portrays our inheritance. But here, he speaks of God's inheritance. What is God's inheritance? Well, it's us. It's the saints. God's inheritance is in us, and we are his inheritance. He's taken possession of us. And of course, in order for an inheritance to be received, someone has to die. And we know that God paid for his inheritance with the blood of his own son. And we need the Holy Spirit daily to give us reminder, a reminder of that priceless value that he put on us and on his church. So this inheritance of God is in the saints. He has inherited us. In other words, he has, is another way of, of what elsewhere the Bible describes as he has adopted us. He has brought us into his family because you, if you are God's inheritance, then you're his heirs. You're, you're intimately connected with him and part of his family. And it's in the saints. You know, we can get disillusioned with church for sure. And as I always say, if you find a perfect church, you'll ruin it the moment you join it. Um, but all joking aside, and I know that wasn't much of a joke, but best I've got uh, at the moment. All joking aside, um, the church does consist of imperfect people like you and me, but it's God's plan A on this earth to extend his kingdom. And he doesn't have a plan B. So uh, knowing the church is imperfect, we ask God to, and, and, and most of us don't need any reminder to be able to pick out an imperfection in the church. Uh, but we need God's reminder that there's another side to it. That is, he's put his glory and his wealth in his church. And um, the church, which is always made concrete in the New Testament, in the local church, it's not an airy-fairy, vague, universal concept. The church manifests itself in local churches, New Life Church Toronto. So as we look at New Life Church, we no doubt can pick out a fault or two. But we also need to say, God, I want the eyes of my heart enlightened so that I can see the riches of the inheritance of what you've placed in New Life Church and the privilege I have of being part of it. So the knowledge of God involves the hope of his calling, the wealth of his inheritance in the church, and finally, 
the greatness of his power. And he, this is the climax of Paul's prayer here in verse 19. And, and, and to express what he's trying to say, he uses four different words for power in this one verse. The first of which is dunamis, um, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Dunamis is the unlimited ability of God directed toward us. So we may feel very limited in our ability, but we have the unlimited ability of God working in us. With God, the impossible just takes a little longer. And the amazing thing is he uses us to do it. The second word is energia. And energia refers specifically in the New Testament to supernatural power. So the power by which a miracle takes place or a healing. The third word is kratos. And that word means it's a military word to capture or gain victory in war. And the fourth and final word is iscus, which refers to raw human strength. It's used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's used to describe Samson. So you get the idea. So if we expanded um, the translation of this verse to kind of get the full impact of these four different words, we could translate it something like um, that, that God wants us to know, here it comes, the immeasurable greatness of his unlimited ability toward us who believe according to the supernatural power of the warring triumph of his raw strength. So when you wake up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror, you can say to yourself, I am seeing in front of me the immeasurable greatness of his unlimited ability toward me who believes according to the supernatural power of the warring triumph of his raw strength. You may not look like it, but it's the truth that God speaks over you. And uh, that's why we need the Holy Spirit to remind us every day of who he is in us. We in ourselves are nothing, but he in us is everything. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so Paul finishes the passage now in verses 20 to 23 with these words. And uh, he speaks about, he's been speaking about the power of God. And he goes on to say this power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all. That's a powerful statement. Although it's impossible to measure the power of God, it is possible to describe its practical effect, which here is described or demonstrated by the raising of Christ from the dead and exalting him to the right hand of God where he is positioned far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion in this age and in the age to come. And uh, this is the power 
that isn't working us. That's the extraordinary thing. When we lived in Owen Sound, we weren't far from the largest nuclear power station in the world uh, at uh, Douglas Point, south of King Carden, north of King Carden, sorry. I know in Toronto that anything outside of Brampton is considered uh, next thing to the North Pole. But those of us who have experienced the wider realities of life know that there's some differentiation out there, geography. So forgive me. Um, that nuclear power station puts out more power than any power station in the world. But the power that's at work in you and me makes the power that comes out of that station look like nothing because all the electricity in Ontario won't raise anyone from the dead, but God did. And he placed that power, that life-giving power in us. It's an extraordinary thing. In fact, the raising of Jesus from the dead was the most climactic act of history since the whole, uh, since the very creation of the universe. It's, it's actually a new creation. And that's why Christ is pictured in the Bible as the second Adam, the new creation. That's why the Apostle John begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. Similar words are found at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. But John is saying in the beginning, he's paralleling the same words that occur in Genesis chapter 1. And what he's saying is that in Christ, there's an entirely new creation or recreation. And that is accomplished by the power of God. And God has taken us up out of the hands of death into this incredible new life by the manifestation of his power. Uh, and uh, he's made Christ, it says in these verses, head over all things for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And if we're his body, that power that raised him from the dead is also in us. And that's why he says in the next chapter that we, like Christ, have been raised also and seated with him in the heavenly places. Even if we haven't had our physical resurrection yet, it's guaranteed to come. But he has already lifted us up out of death into life and guaranteed the eternal life that's to come by the manifestation of his power within us. All these things come to us as we pray and as we fellowship and, and experience uh, the knowledge of God. So two conclusions briefly. Number one, how important it is to pray. Well, if you think about it, we have this whole revelation of truth that I read in these verses uh, here this morning. We only have it because Paul was praying. Paul was praying and we listened in on his prayer. Now, prayer isn't the only place to find the presence of the Spirit, but it's a pretty good place to find the presence of the Spirit. And we agonize over time spent in prayer and find it difficult. I find it difficult. It's a discipline that I get into, then I fall out of, then I have to get back into it because I know 
that the reservoir is going dry. When I was in uh, grade nine, uh, I took music class and uh, I took up an instrument, which happened to be the viola. Uh, I had a lot of background in piano and for a year, I got really good marks in music and uh, I was happy with that. And then I got into grade, but I didn't practice very much and I didn't work at it. And then when I got into grade 10, my marks dropped quite a bit. And I went to my teacher and I said, why are my marks dropping? And he said to me, Dave, he said in his thick Polish accent, it was a remarkable man who had um, enlisted at the beginning of the Second World War in a, a Polish regiment fighting the Nazis. And he was one of three. There was only three out of almost 300 men in his regiment survived. He was one of them. But in that thick Polish accent, he said to me, Dave, he said, you are running on your reservoir of past knowledge and it's running dry. And that kicked me a bit into gear. Uh, And we can be like that in the place of prayer. And I can too, I'm confessing it. But the good thing is that every minute spent in prayer will yield a return. You don't have to spend hours in prayer. Um, you, you can pray and you don't have to go to a prayer room and pray. You can pray while you're, uh, close your eyes and pray while you're on the subway. You can pray while you're driving a car. Hopefully don't close your eyes while you're doing it. You can pray while you're walking along the street. You can pray while you're washing the dishes. You can pray while you're changing diapers. You can pray. You can just take a moment here and a moment there and it's worth it. Every minute it spent in prayer is going to yield a return. Y'all find peace. Y'all hear God. Y'all gain wisdom. Uh, Y'all be protected from unwise actions. Y'all find the will of God for your life. Y'all gain everything Paul's been talking about in these verses. You may not have much time, but even five minutes spent in prayer is an investment in eternity. It will yield you more benefit than an hour spent in any other activity you could do, guarantee. So number one, this passage teaches us it really is important to follow Paul's example and pray because it leads us into wisdom, revelation, and an understanding of our inheritance in Christ and uh, holds us in the midst of everything life can throw against us. And the second conclusion I'd like to leave with you is that the knowledge of God is what releases the purposes of God. So the first conclusion is how important it is to pray. The second conclusion is the knowledge of God releases the purposes of God. Through enabling us to understand the scriptures and apply them, the Holy Spirit leads us into the knowledge of God. That's the message of these verses or one of the messages. That experiential, intimate knowledge of God, that's where you find that hope that this passage talks about. That's where you find your value and significance. That's where you access the power of God. That's where you confront and destroy the lies that Satan is speaking every moment to you because he's the author of lies and that's his mandate. When we understand the scriptures and apply them, by the spirit that leads us into the knowledge of god you can get counseled and seminared 
and prophesied over till you're blue in the face. But without knowing God personally, through the power of the Spirit, leading you into the Word of God, you will never step into the eternal plan for which God created you and put you on earth. Now, if that doesn't motivate you to seek to know God better through the Spirit and invest at least a minute or two a day in prayer, then I don't know what will. But I hope that I've been able to serve you and stir you up and encourage you to that end today. And I speak as one who has risen and fallen in the place of prayer, but I keep going back to God on that. And he never fails me and he won't fail you. Let me pray. Father, I thank you today in Jesus' name for the release of the power and presence of your spirit to lead my brothers and sisters into your knowledge so that they may understand that hope to which you've called us, so that they may know the power uh, that is at work within us, so that they may have an increase in the wisdom and understanding of God and know that this inheritance that you have placed within us is extraordinary. Lord, I pray that where we've fallen short, uh, you'd encourage us today. I pray that you'd motivate us. I pray that you would counteract the lies of the enemy, that prayer is just a drudgery, with the revelation that it is actually the single most productive thing we can do with our time and will yield benefits in every possible area of our lives. So, Lord, please come and help us in our weakness so that we can access this incredible inheritance that you purchased for us by the blood of your son at such cost. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and God bless you all.